Hello and welcome to our podcast, Geeks, We Are Your Fathers. We're three very proud geek dads and we're here to talk technology, science fiction, gaming and anything geeky. In this episode, we'll be exploring the world of aviation, interviewing Simon Loomis and debating our trust in pilotless flying. Hello and welcome to episode four of Geeks, We Are Your Fathers. I'm Robbie and I'm here once again with Dave. Hi everyone. And Pete. Hi everyone. So in this week's episode, we're exploring the world of aviation and aerospace, which, looking back, probably should have been our pilot episode. Sorry, <laughs> couldn't resist the dad joke there. <laughs> so, Dave, this is your specialist subject, really. Yeah, it is. It's, it's been a, aviation, aeroplanes, everything around it has been a, a, something that I've been passionate about for as long as I can remember. Uh, my dad, who's he's now 85, he served in the Air Force. He did national service back in, in the 50s in the Air Force. Um, and then my brother was in the Navy and at one point was looking after helicopters. He was doing the electrical systems on helicopters. So for as long as I can remember, I've been going to airplane museums. I've been going to see air shows. And uh, as much as everybody around me laughs, if a plane goes over, I'll look up. Um, there's the, I don't know what it is about them. Um, there's so many aspects to it that I've found just so fascinating uh, the the planes themselves how they work what they do uh everything it's it's just it's an all-encompassing interest really it, it you know Dave you're talking about planes when looking up when you, they go over do you remember and you live near the Hefo fight path and uh, you'll remember this but when Concorde was flying it used to fly over us as well the noise that that thing used to make when it was oh, coming yeah. across the whole the kind of everything stopped in the house at 11 a.m. and 7 yep. p.m. every night, and it was probably even louder where you were, right up up near Heathrow there. But my God, that that was you know you saw it twice a day for years and years. But every time it came over, everyone stopped, looked up, and just was like mouth open. Wow, absolutely. You know what what an incredible piece of aviation. Wish I had it, exactly. Right. I mean, just just from a geeky point of view, from a, from the point of view of of the engineering of it, just the list of things that you could talk about that that Concorde did for the commercial world that previously only military had played with and it's still not been topped no we could do a day trip to New York right in effect well, <laughs> yeah you could yeah cost you a lot I mean, of money that, that was the thing the whole point behind the, the Concorde trip going west was that you landed before you took off because yeah. it was a three hour flight and the time difference was five hours to New York. So you'd effectively, you'd win back a whole day. You know what it's like flying over there at the moment. You, you leave at 11 o'clock in the morning and you spend all day on the plane and then you land at, what, three o'clock in the afternoon, at which point you're shattered. Yeah. And the whole point was that if you took off at 11 in the UK, you'd land at nine o'clock in the morning, New York time. And then you've got a day of business. You've, you've won your day back. You used to remind me, Dave, of a story, and um, and your because I know you're into flight sim, but I remember when we used to work together, <laughs> and uh, oh, you'd yeah. come in on a Monday morning absolutely shattered and say, "Oh, I flew to New York this weekend." And I'm like, "Really? <laughs> How did you do that?" And but yeah, so you didn't actually fly in a proper plane, did you, Dave? No, <laughs> no, it's all doing? it was all um, flight simulation. As the Microsoft was the the people who did this. You did the entire um, flight. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, there's, there's times where you can speed it up and, and you know, not do the boring bits, flying over miles and miles of sea. But uh, you know, the interesting bit for a, from a flying point of view is the, where you start and where you end, for taking off and landing. But the, the flight sim community, I only really ever scraped the surface of it. So Microsoft had this, this thing called Flight Simulator. And when they first, I, I think if I'm right, when they first released it, it was kind of a freebie add-on that they threw into the operating system when you bought a Microsoft machine. And there was such a following to it that it evolved. Uh, and by the time they, they cancelled it, so Microsoft eventually closed down the office, what, I suppose about swear, 10 years ago, 9, 10 years ago, something like that. They were onto the 10th version of this software. And it was, it was hugely realistic just in itself. But then there was this enormous community of people who provided additional information to go into it it was an, an open architecture so people could design their own scenery they could design their own airplanes and then there was the 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 online aspect of flying using a computer but you could simulate the real world with real air traffic controllers and fly with other people so it was a it, it was a virtual representation of of flying for real 
You could join a virtual airline and log your hours for that particular airline. You could even join virtual air forces and learn some of the, 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 the training that they did. And, and it must be said, the Internet has made that so much easier. It's made connecting people easier. Um, information is now shared. I mean, you can go online nowadays and find complete aviation charts for the whole world. Wow. Uh, all free. Uh, you can find all sorts of flight planning tools. But the, the, the flight sim community was and still is filled with people who who wants to to be part of that world and like i say i only scratched the surface of it i did a little bit of online flying i was more interested in the actual doing rather than talking to other people but it's it's an incredible uh community of people and, and it's just another example of of communities of geeks who get together so whether it's flying or whether it's knitting or whatever it is the whole point is when geeks come out to bat for their particular topic they're hard to beat did you actually like what did you think can you autopilot did you like you know or was it like on the airplane the movie where you press the button and an inflatable pilot came up and took over <laughs> <laughs> yeah very nearly or, or could you like Mate. press pause i need a cup of tea or did you get um your wife to come and bring you a drink and a sandwich <laughs> or well you know and did you get to go cabin crew cabin crew doors to manual cross check did you do stuff like that as well or well, if you wanted to immerse yourself quite that much, um, and and if you if you go online and you search for uh, such, a, I think it's virtual cockpits or something like that, you can see guys who have recreated their spare bedroom and they they've built a virtual replica of an Airbus cockpit, for example, with all the wow. controls. You can buy all the hardware. It's all designed to link into your computer. I was never quite that much, um, but. But yeah, you could do the whole shebang if you wanted to. That's what retirement's for. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, a friend of mine, he's actually a cabin crew, and it's funny. He was telling me some of the things. So they call pilots Nigels, apparently. That's the that's the slang. For a pilot. <laughs> um, and the cabin crew are affectionately known as Bicky Chuckers, apparently, because they're chucking biscuits across the sea. So I just thought that was hilarious. So there's all these things that um, yeah, the cabin crew have. I mean, they sound like they have such an amazing time. I mean, it's a tough job. But, I mean, I don't know how they do it. They're they're on their feet for hours at a time. You know, some of the passages aren't very nice. And yeah. I think those guys, wow, you know, they do such an amazing job and they get very little credit for it. You know, it is a lot more than just chucking biscuits and, it is. Um, you know, giving well, stuff to the pilots. They, they, work, they work really hard, those guys. It's got to be better to do now, though, than it was 10 or 15 years ago when they'd have to watch the same episode of Only Fools and Horses or yeah. <laughs> One Foot in the Grave every time they were going anywhere. Do you know, I remember when we were kids and we, 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 we first flew to the US... And uh, it was probably, uh, it was early 80s, I think it was, or probably about 1980, actually, and we flew across to Canada. And you, did have, you didn't have any in-flight entertainment and such. There was no screens in the back of your, your seat. What you had was they had these big CRT screens, like strategically paced in really bad positions all the way down the aisle. And you just have to look over and get a crook in the neck and try and listen to a film through a really dodgy pair of headphones. And uh, we don't realise how sport we are today when you get on a plane. Oh, yeah. I'm saying that. Yeah. I mean, most people take their own entertainment now. I don't even watch the movies that are on a plane. But uh... Well, there's the, you've got streaming services now, so rather than watch that oh, yeah. that postage stamp size screen in front of you, you take your own iPad, you connect to the, the local Wi-Fi, and you can stream a movie from their servers. So you can do that at 30-whatever thousand feet. And if you're on a, an Emirates flight, you've still got the, you've got the option of live TV. You can still watch oh, yeah. live sports and all sorts oh, really? of that. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. I've seen some of these things with the guys in first class in like Qatar Airlines and stuff, where they've got like a, you know, a, a little cabin almost to themselves, haven't they, with oh, a yeah. double bed? And yeah. They cost like thousands and thousands of pounds, oh, like, yeah. you know, 12, 15,000 pounds just to, you know, to, to fly somewhere. That I mean, you've got to have serious money and... To chuck away to do that but it does look amazing i mean i've been it lucky is. enough to fly business class and that's amazing but wow you know if you have the money that is definitely the way to fly isn't it oh yeah there was a program on bbc i think it was bbc a, a year or so back and it it was focused on the people who are making those small cabins to go in things like qatar and emirates and Qantas and all these these high-end airlines uh, and it followed the process of actually making the cabin and that that for a certain time, I've I've inhabited that world professionally because I was involved in connectors that go into that kind of thing, and the they've got their own little room, uh, and their own little room. If it's in the middle of the aeroplane, because you can't all have a window seat, the the expectation is if you spent that much money for a seat, you're going to have a view. So they'll link up the TV screen, which is an enormous TV screen, in this little cabin to give you effectively a window seat. 
it's that attention to detail. Oh, wow. And the little cabins themselves, which are no bigger than the smallest room in your, in your house, they're worth as much as your house to install in this aeroplane. And that's why people are paying £15,000 a flight. Because it is, we're talking a quarter of a million per seat by the time you've, you've got it all. And it's it, none of us cattle class in the back where you sit down and have your blanket. If you want a particular brand of champagne, yes, sir, of course. Yeah, it's a different world. Uh, you know, this, this is, there's so many things that aviation has influenced, uh, not just aviation, but military as well. But the head up display kind of came about and it's been, it's been around, the idea of it's been around since the war. But it kind of matured late 60s, early 70s. And now you got it in your car or you can even have it in your glasses. And those Google Glass things, they they don't they never really took off, did they? They got much maligned and I don't really know why. Yeah, but it, it was but a privacy we'll issue. Yeah, and a lot of people got a bit a bit I mean I, I had a go with them, they're amazing. Especially if you're like you know when you walk down, especially in London, you, you don't know where you're going off the time because there's so many streets, you know, to have a Google Glass up one and stare at your phone and risk somebody coming along the moped and nicking it off you, right? With yeah. a pair of heads up displays, you know, you, you, you can you know, you don't have that problem. You know, you can see where you're going. But I've got to say heads up in my car and it's great. And I get my wife's car and she has it. And I'll kind of like keep trying to look down where the speedo is. And I spend more time looking looking for the speedo than I do at the road. Right. So they're definitely much safer having a heads up display where you just look at the end of your bonnet and you see how fast you're going. You know, yeah. it is incredible technology. They were clever as well. Those Google Glass, I remember trying those as well. And it, I, I always saw the future for them being in training exercises. Yeah. So especially in remote locations, I remember seeing an example in the oil and gas industry out in Texas yeah. and showing them how to fix a, a valve that was broken. And it, it just they could watch the video while they were doing it. I mean, it takes that whole YouTube um, tutorial to a whole new level because yeah. rather than having to watch it on your phone and then do it you can watch it and do it at the same time which was was mind-blowing for me but it's the same as a lot of emerging technology they still had a lot of little things that they just needed to get right yeah i mean they're great for emergency services as well like they, i saw one similar to that where they were training um the fire rescue services where if you're in a burning building you know and it's full of smoke and you can't see they can actually overlay like a map layout of the building so it's zero visibility almost to you, but if you overlay like a, a building plan, you've got more of an idea of where you are within that building. So incredible technology. And I think that's the thing. Yeah. I think it will take off better in, in, in the commercial application. And I think at some point, Google Glass will certainly come back for us all. But uh, I think, again, it was probably a little bit before its time. I think you're right. I think you're right. But but in that commercial, whether it's emergency services or uh, surgeons trying to do surgery remotely uh, or any kind of installation job especially one done in a, a dangerous environment i reckon they're going to be ideal because effectively you can use them you can have a team of people supporting the one guy who's got his hands on the tools you could have a team of experts behind him who are using that technology to provide guidance for what he's doing whilst he's keeping both his hands free to either hang on to whatever he's hanging off or both hands on the tools it's yeah, there's, there's going to be applications for it, any number of yeah. applications once they, they perfect the technology. Yeah, I, I agree. So you know, just, just, you're talking about plane travel again, you know, we're obviously still in this lockdown situation. I'm just really curious to see what happens as we move forward. I know there are a lot of the airlines in trouble, but how, how is air travel going to work in the future? You know, how is this social distancing? Are we all going to have to get on the plane with hazmat suits on? You know, are we, are we, you know how could you sit two metres away? If somebody coughs, obviously, you see these simulations of the whole cough going up and flooding yeah. the whole cabin mm. no it's just i i just oh i can't see how seen, it's going to work i've seen something on um, twitter yesterday that yeah. air lingus are apparently getting oh. into a bit of trouble because they had a pictures were emerging of a flight from belfast to london that was still completely full in the current climate and there was yeah. no no spaces in between at all whereas mm. i know a lot of airlines that are still operating at the moment are basically using one seat on each side of the plane um, which isn't much of a problem right now. I haven't got many people wanting to travel, but no. yeah, it will be interesting. But I think it's the same as everything else. It's it's going to take some time to get back to some sort of normal, and I don't think mm. it's ever going to be the normal that we knew before. No, I, I agree. So we fly quite a lot to Alderney in the Channel Islands, and that's like a little twelve-seater uh, double prop. Yeah. <laughs> this is mm. like you know how you can't even social distance from the pilot he's like less than two <laughs> meters away right you can touch him on the shoulder almost right and you can see all the instrumentation i mean that's actually that's the that's the way to fly right if you if you're flying a little plane like that and you're and this is only five thousand feet you're skimming over the channel 
you can see everything, you know, the pilot's there, and he's put it on autopilot, he's having his cheese sandwich and Marks and Spencer's and a packet of peanuts, you know, and he's chatting to you and stuff, and I mean, that, 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 uh, that, that sort of flying, I mean, is totally different to what you're doing when you, you know, on a commercial airline, and have you ever done any flying, Dave, Robbie? Have I've done, done a little bit, it was, it was always been one of those dreams that it's not a, it's not a cheap thing to do, um, I got bought a, a flight for my 30th birthday, which is longer ago than I care to admit. Um, and I was able to um, to go for a flight in a tiger moth from White Waltham, which is just down the oh, road yeah. from where you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I was in the cadets when I was at school, so I was able to do a, a bit of flying with them. So the, the, I don't know if the cadets still work as well as they did when I was at school, but if you expressed an interest in joining the forces, which I did at the time, there are all sorts of opportunities for you to do things like learn how to fly, go to sea and all this kind yeah. of stuff. And, and I was able to, to do a little bit of that. Um, I, the problem I had is I think I was a little bit later in life when I realised that I would have wanted to have done more of that, more of it when I was younger. It's all of the, you never know yeah. what you want to do when you're 16 years old. And sometimes as a 40 year old, you want to go back, slap yourself around the face and say, come on, <laughs> sort your life out. You know what you want to do. Um, and I never had that chance. So you just have to make the best of it i know what you mean i mean i, I did a cessna flight i've done a couple again like you i had kind of a present and did it and i mean it is amazing it's totally scary though when they say oh do you want to take the controls and you're like Ooh. <laughs> you know <laughs> it's it, it's really scary but that, they are great fun and I've, I've been in a glider as well which is very eerie you know flying a glider because it's so silent but um i was just I was talking earlier with you guys uh, the, one of the guys we work with he um he commutes to work in his ultralight and it's just like how, how does he do that? But I mean, apparently these um, there's there's all these airfields all around the country, and I didn't realise there's one actually literally within five miles of my house. It's just a bit of grass, right? I have seen the windsock up actually, but he lives near a, a field um, in, in in the area of Cambridge, and our office is up in Corby. I've got a um, a, a field. Uh, an airfield right next to the offices, so he literally will get in his little micro light, it was ultralight as it is, and he'll fly to work, park his ultralight in the field next to the office at Corby, walk over the road, and he's in the office. No, no, no um, I mean, what a commute that is, no sitting in traffic. You can't get a Starbucks, so you can't go for the drive through. I guess that's important. <laughs> yeah, no. depends what your priorities are, Pete, aren't they? I remember hearing him tell the story for the first time, but I'd caught the wrong end of the conversation, and I was thinking he was flying a private jet into work every day, and I was thinking, <laughs> how on earth? What's he doing working here if he can afford to, to fly a private jet every day? But I yeah, I mean that's it's incredible. Maybe that's the future for us all. Maybe if we all we're all flying our own micro lights and ultra lights, then that'll be our that'll be our travel around the country going forward. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Do you know what? And these things are so cheap. I mean, I didn't realise, but you can pick one of these things up for like fifteen hundred quid, right? Fifteen hundred pounds. It's that is like cheaper than a, a second hand car almost, isn't it? You know, or a transatlantic and, flight. Or a transatlantic well, yeah. Flight. Tell me. Yeah. And you only need about 15 hours of flight time to get a license to fly one of these ultralights, right? Wow. And then you can literally fly anywhere. I mean, I know that he, he will go, oh, this weekend I flew down to, to South of France, you know? Or you, you go down, you, you go left at the Isle of Wight, <laughs> you just go down, you land, you know, you go and have a nice little French lunch, and you get back in your micro, you know, your ultralight, and you fly back again. So, but I mean, that that that's amazing. And he's even got... Um, he even uses tech like Raspberry Pi. You know Raspberry Pi, obviously the single board computer that's yeah. uh, is really popular in the maker community. He's got um, a little gadget called Pilot Aware on there, which is uses a Raspberry Pi, in it, and it literally is a kind of a, a gadget that allows you to let other aircraft know that you're in the vicinity, and you can see aircraft, they can see you, and it just stops you sort of colliding with each other because um, you know the airspace is pretty big, but you know I guess it's always good to have these kind of things so you know you know that you're not about to uh, crash into something so you're not that one statistic you're not yeah. that one statistic you know and these mm. things as well if the engine fails you just glide it in right i mean it, it's literally and they are really safe things you know in effect to fly but uh, but yeah I, I would love to be able to commute and cut probably a good 45 minutes off my trip do they just fly in that space that's below the sort of commercial airlines then they just yeah well you can go ten thousand feet right in one of these ultralights yeah. but you would normally fly a yeah, you know, thousand feet, yeah. two thousand feet. Yeah, so you're well away I mean, from most things. And the 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 airspace in certainly in the UK is is and Europe as a whole is is quite restricted. But you can fly up to a certain altitude depending on where you are. Um, it's interesting though. In over in the US, they've got a completely different 
outlook on on that kind of stuff they've got a lot more space which obviously they've, they've got tons more space but that whole general aviation community is is huge over there um, and what you described pete about the idea of jumping any plane in, and going off to the south of france and or going off north of france and, and going having null frites over in in la rochelle yeah. or wherever in america yeah. i think they call it the hundred dollar burger the idea is you go to the, the airport uh, with your mates jump in your cessna go to another one have a burger there and fly back um but it's like that. but they've but the whole the, the general aviation community over there is, is a that's a different kettle of fish i read about i read so much about aviation but there's there's whole sections of of say northern canada and alaska and even some of the uh, the mainland uh, the main 48 states in the u.s that during the winter in in when there's snow on the ground there aren't many other ways of getting to and from these places but no. but by air you know, the, the the whole one guy in his tiny little Cessna or his tiny little Piper being the lifeline to a village. The If you read about people like, there's a guy called Don Sheldon who was one of the pioneers of this. It's called bush flying. So the idea is you land out in the countryside on any flat bit of, of ground and, and it's tiny little bits of flat ground that they can find and they can fly to. Um, Don Sheldon was a, a guy who'd flown in the war and uh, and he was one of the pioneers of this industry. And now, if you go to, I mean, I think have you been to Vancouver, Pete? I'm sure. I've been to Vancouver. No, I haven't been to. The um, West I, somebody I met was talking about the idea of they see these little seaplanes flying off from the harbour in, in Vancouver, yeah. and that's just the, like the most visible uh, aspect of this bush flying uh, community because yeah. these same planes are the ones that are keeping these tiny little villages alive. And and I find that fascinating. Every part of aviation is just it's got a little story to tell. Yeah, and I mean actually, when we were kids, um, my uh, my mother's best friend lives out in mid Toronto, and he was a pilot for De Havilland um, at the wow. time, and he had a little yeah. seaplane that he used to borrow at the weekends, and his brother had a log cabin out in Lake Ontario, and I always remember us flying in. It was like a little eight seater, and when you um, when you land because it had these wolf floats, we would land on the lake. It was absolutely amazing. But when you were going to take off again there was kind of all this sort of drag and all of a sudden you lift off and you get this big kick up the butt. <laughs> You'd like shoot up and a bit like something out of the Indiana Jones movie, right? It was, it was absolutely incredible. Um, but that, yeah, those seaplanes are very common um, out there in, out in the wilderness, which like I say, you, you can't get to the road, you can't get by road to a lot of these places. You no. have to go in with a plane. That sound means it's time for this week's special guest interview and Pete's been speaking to Simon Loomis. Hi Simon, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Nice Friday afternoon. Yes, absolutely. So look, tell us, how did you get into flying? So I'd always had, uh, I'd always had an interesting or a hankering after uh, after flying, and um, uh, to prove my age, I'd uh, I'd bought an Atari ST. Oh yeah. Um, for those who who remember. Uh, and one of the programs that you could buy for an, an Atari ST was a Sublogic Flight Simulator, um, which is absolutely fantastic. And uh, I uh, I learned to fly properly um, on that. Uh, absolutely brilliant with a mouse and a keyboard and flew all around um, bits of America and just had a fantastic time. It was great. The, the Sublogic was ultimately bought by uh, Microsoft and became Microsoft Flight Simulator. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, I think uh, Dave, my podcast co-host, also knows that very well. I think he cut his teeth on that as well. So I got the aviation bug and started flying uh, uh, on my Atari. And I was, uh, I was in a local pub and uh, heard two guys talking. And I said, uh, I went over and talked to them. And they said, oh, yeah, you should go, and go to the local airfield and get a, uh, get a trial lesson. And I was living in Leicester at the time, North Leicester. And they said, uh, go over to uh, go over to East Midlands. And I thought, you can't, you can't learn to fly East Midlands. So I, uh, I drove over to East Midlands, uh, East Midlands Flying School, as it was then. Yeah. And uh, and booked a trial lesson. Wow. And that was what in a in a Cessna, I guess, was it or something like that? That was a that was a Cessna uh, Cessna one five two, half an hour trial lesson. And I thought this is for me. I thought, oh, this is just the best thing ever. But but learning to fly wasn't uh, had its up and down. You know, the rule is if you can if you can drive a car, you can fly a plane. I beg to differ on that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, 
it was it was interesting learning to fly i really enjoyed the learning process and it wasn't it wasn't without its ups and downs because learning to fly has a few hiccups along the way for for everybody um and it they show up in different places some people find it hard to learn to land and other people find it hard to uh, uh navigate or talk on the radio um but it all comes together it's like playing a piano yeah, I guess so. I guess it's one of those things that the more time you're in the air practicing and flying, I guess the easier it gets. A bit like driving a car, I suppose. So, but when you're not in a plane, then, so you were telling me about this amazing setup you've got in your garage. So, what, what's what have you got there? So I um uh, I started. I realised that that flying simulators on computers was great fun, and I tried different setups with joysticks and rudder pedals and and infrared. How, uh, hats you could wear so that you could have that all-round experience and the, the first simulator i built was um was actually a cessna 172 and i built a full control panel out of uh using radio controlled servos oh okay well, like you're getting radio control cars and stuff yeah yeah absolutely but you had to take them to bits because they, you wanted them to turn uh 360 degrees there was a company in holland called Simkits, which is still around but at the time, they sold these these gauges as kits, and so I built a uh, I built my first flight simulator was a Cessna 172, um, and this was back with CRTs. So I had three CRTs around this uh, this t- computer setup and all these different things. Um, and then I graduated on and realised um, uh, a friend of mine said, "Oh no, you should go and see this guy. He's got a fantastic setup." Uh, and so I went and visited a guy uh, who's no longer with us now called uh, called Ian Sessions. And Ian had a 737 in his garage. Wow. A Not a real 737, obviously, but... <laughs> a 737 cockpit, a cockpit yeah. which he yeah. built uh, at minimum cost. Um, and everything worked. And I flew it, and it was absolutely fantastic. And so when I came home, uh, that was my goal. And so you can buy all of the plastic bits uh, for all of the main instrument panel, the pedestal, the overhead, the aft overhead. Uh, you can buy all the bits of plastic. And then I didn't have the money to, and it's been a five-year project uh, building the sim, but I didn't have the money. So I built a bit at a time and I used all of my electronics uh, and programming skills so loads of bits of my uh, simulator are driven by uh, Arduinos of different flavors doing different functions. Okay. So you've written the code for that, or is there like libraries available that you can just pick and use that other people have done? And or if you kind of built this as a bit of a homebrew? So um, there is a huge following. You can't believe uh, how many forums and uh, companies sell bits for you to build your Boeing 737 or actually an Airbus A320 is also very popular. But somebody created a library um, for the software that most 737 enthusiasts use, um, which is a a program called ProSim. Uh, And ProSim pulls all together the hardware and software and talks to Microsoft Flight Simulator or uh, uh, P3D, which is the the simulator that's driving the visuals effectively. And um, uh, so somebody's written some code that makes it very easy and you don't have to do any coding yourself. You just have to say, you identify the module and you tell it the function you want it to do. And it actually calls some library code and it's easy. Me personally, I wrote it all myself. I wrote all of the code I've used myself uh, uh, and I enjoyed doing it. It was great fun and it was great fun building the modules. But every display, uh, because Arduinos are really good at driving LED displays and LCD displays, and it's three wires. So I've got one Arduino Uno that can drive one, two, three, four radio modules in the cockpit and you just daisy chain them all together. Yeah, very cool. So do you have like a... Uh, like a flight seat and pedals and a like a, a, a what do you, oh, I was going to say steering wheel that's really the thing that you steer the plane with what do, do you have all that control as well? column that's control the one. column yeah um, so you so my seven three seven cockpit is a full size so it's two seats and the 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 two most expensive things in the cockpit 
are the two seats that came out of a Boeing 737. A real Boeing 737. A real Boeing 737 that was decommissioned. I bought the seats and imported them into the UK and they cost me about 900 quid. Wow. Uh, that was one of the most expensive things. And the other most expensive thing, because it was going to take too long to build and develop myself, was what we call the TQ, the throttle quadrant. Uh, oh, yeah. Because the throttle yeah. quadrant has loads of things. It's got the throttles, the reverse thrust, the flaps, the speed brake, the fuel. There's loads of things on it. And so I bought one of those, a fully motorized one. So uh, it will drive the throttles automatically. And that uses, um, uses an interesting programming language called SIOC. And SIOC is an event-based programming language rather than a sequential-based programming language. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> so if you write some code in Arduino, you know it goes around in a loop and you know that it will branch off if, you know, with if statements or case statements or whatever you're using. A, a event-based programming language only calls a subroutine when a variable associated ah. with that event changes. If it doesn't change, it doesn't call the code. So nothing runs until something happens, but it's really hard to get your head around. Okay, <laughs> it sounds it. So, how long does it take you to put this this together? Is it? Uh, it's been a labour of love, I guess. So is this is a number of years, and you said you've been collecting bits for it, and I guess bits off eBay. Uh, it's and... over over five years. I've been building the sim. It's been it's been in a flyable condition for the last three years. But what's always annoying is you always end up upgrading something. Yeah. <laughs> so I've just upgraded the graphics card in the main processor to um, one of the new NVIDIA ones. Yeah. And I've just redone all the graphics. I've got three projectors onto a curved screen. Oh, wow. You have to buy, you have to buy software that does uh, uh, warping and blending to blend those three screens together. So it's full wrap round, 180 degree graphics. Wow, and I'm assuming that this sounds like you've probably got a lot of fans whirring and a lot of noise. Probably sounds like you're actually taking off, right? With all that cooling you've got going on. Yes, <laughs> so. it's, uh, but you, uh, interestingly enough, you uh, you fit speakers and things like bass shakers oh, okay. because the 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 sound is a great immersive medium to make you believe that things are going on around you. I, I'm assuming you've never flown a real 737, it, but does it feel like flying an aircraft? Obviously you fly light aircraft. Is, is there some kind of... Well, so the having the having the wrap round graphics um, uh, and the cockpit space. Yeah. So, so to start with, it feels a bit funny, but once you've been flying it for 10, 15 minutes, um, your brain is fooled into the situation that you're flying uh, uh, you're flying a 737 and like i said you have the right sound you've got the right lighting you've got everything set up and you're turning onto final to land in difficult weather conditions into a runway and you realize the palms of your hands are sweating so I guess the only thing you are missing, I guess, is obviously you're not using radio to communicate with the tower, or is there some sort of simulation around that as well? Or oh, Pete, <laughs> Pete, you you need to. So you know, through the COVID nineteen and the lockdown, yes, that, that lots of people stopped flying around the planet. There were more people flying online than there were aeroplanes <laughs> in the sky. And you there's can communicate network, with these guys, right? I guess while you're a, flying. There's a network, yeah, there's a network called Vatsim. Oh wow! Uh, virtual, uh, it's for virtual aviation, yeah. and you have two groups of people on that. You have pilots flying aircraft and people in control towers. No way! All Shut the around the world. Really? No, all That's... around the world. And so you you put the aircraft at a stand at an airfield. Right. You file a flight plan, and then you execute the flight plan and talk to all the radio controllers. It's a hundred and fifty percent immersive wow. you cannot believe it i i honestly didn't realize it was to that extent i knew you would obviously get in and then fly somewhere but that that's incredible that people go to that level of detail and it's funny I, i'm into ham radio and i've just actually because i live not that far from heathrow as the crow flies so i've actually tuned into the the um the uhf uh download that they do and i've been listening to heathrow tower and uh it, it is fascinating i don't know what it is i just love listening to it maybe i should join the flight sim community and just do the tower <laughs> So, um, and then get into flying. I'm not sure I've got enough space to build a 737 cockpit, but, uh, <laughs> but that sounds that sounds amazing. And I think uh, you were telling me as well. You actually you do actually do sit in a real control tower. Is that right at your local airfield? 
That's right, yes. So um, uh, I'm the voice of uh, Connington, or EGSF is the ICAO identifier for uh, Peterborough Connington, and I sit in the control tower. We're an air ground service, so we're giving information to pilots. Um, uh, we often give taxi information, the runway we're using, the circuit direction, the, uh, the Q&H and the QFE, which are the millibar pressures that people set for landing and for departing the airfield. And I'll go and sit in there on a, of a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon and, and talk, to, uh, talk to pilots. It's, um, it's mental, it's three-dimensional chess talking yes. to aeroplanes. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was reading some things about some air traffic controllers and, and you guys, you know, that they, they have nerves of steel, they're very calm. I don't think I could do it. I mean, I love, uh, you know, to work chaotically and I thrive with that, but that is just, yeah, you, you know, it's a different different world when you've got um, planes in close proximity to each other, obviously, that could, uh, one simple mistake could be game over, well, so, isn't it? Well, so the, um, so we're an air ground service, which means we can't tell, except for safety reasons, we can't tell anybody to do anything technically. Then it goes up and up and up until you're at Heathrow level. But an air ground service there, so the pilots flying around are responsible for their own separation and the safety of their own aircraft. We're just giving them them information. It's, um, uh, but it is, it is very interesting. And it's when, uh, when it's busy and a group of pilots start talking to you, I can do about, on a good day, I can do five, I can remember five calls, but the sixth one gets lost. <laughs> so five people talk to you all at once, one after another, I just go backwards and, and pop them off the stack in reverse order and answer the questions. But after about five people, I can't remember anymore. And so I just wait for them to call back and ask again. <laughs> <laughs> But Simon, thank you so much. That was amazing, and uh, I would love to come and check out your flight sim. So we should, when all this lockdown's over, I'll, I'll pop up to Peterborough, we'll crack open a beer, and have a flight to New York or something. That would be amazing. Yeah. Sounds fantastic, <laughs> Pete. That would be great. That's great. Thank you so much, Simon. Uh, great to speak to you, and uh, hopefully see you soon. My absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Cheers. So now we've come to In Pursuit of Dispute, the section where we agree to disagree. Sticking with our aerospace and aviation theme, today we'll be discussing whether we'd be happy to fly in an aeroplane that has no pilot. That could mean it's controlled entirely by artificial intelligence, like a self-driving car, or that it's controlled remotely by a pilot. Maybe they're just working from home like the rest of us are just now. So what do you think, guys? Well, I've got a fairly, fairly solidly held opinion on this. Um... One of the things about reading about pilots is that almost every pilot who ever actually manages to make a living out of it, and there's there's plenty of people who can't, who'd never get the chance. But even if you, you look at anything from, from fighter pilots to commercial pilots, these people have dreamed about flying from probably before they can imagine. Um, and it's one of the few industries one of the few occupations in the world where somebody can be completely obsessed by one thing in almost any other walk of life these people people will be told to go and have a, a whiskey and calm down a little bit but a pilot can be totally and completely obsessed with the act of flying now uh, airplanes nowadays you know, modern airbuses modern boeings all these modern airliners a lot of what they do is automated most of these airplanes can conduct pretty much a full flight from start to finish with no real manual involvement and that's fine until something goes wrong yeah. so i had uh, my cousin used to fly 747s he's the same generation as me but he's a little bit older he used to fly 747s and when he retired he got twenty-five thousand hours of flying over a 40 odd year career and he remembers i remember him telling me about uh, a particular flight where he was flying the length of africa from cape town up to heathrow and he got about halfway along in his 747 and an engine fell off. Well, just clean off. Pretty much. Maybe that's how the film Donnie Darko started because there was an engine <laughs> just came out of the sky. They never quite knew where it came from. <laughs> well, it, it does happen. It does happen. These things, you know, something lets go. These are mechanical devices, after all, and things can fail. Um, and so there he is with three engines and he's halfway up to up to Heathrow from 
the the south of africa um and he managed to put in i think he seemed to remember he said he, he managed to put into portugal but the point is that he earned his money when it all went wrong. Was he out there with a spanner beforehand, Dave, just loosening the uh, the engine, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, earning yeah. his money, making sure he earned his money. I think he'd, he quite would have happily quite lived without the drama, from what he told yeah, I me. Can imagine. Um, I mean, he was the captain of the plane, so not only was he responsible for landing the plane he then had 350 odd people that he had to look after make sure they had places to live for the night that they were able to get their baggage that they had place ways to get home from there on so it's not it's an all-encompassing job but then if we look at what sully the the uh, miracle on the hudson it's called and uh, here's a man who had been flying for 40 odd years uh, and he says uh, uh, i'm not sure if i get this quote right but basically he said I spent 42 years banking tiny bits of experience right up until the point where those geese hit his aeroplane and he was able to cash in all of those bits of experience that he'd saved over 42 years in the space of what 90 seconds, a minute, two minutes, something like that. He was there making it happen when something went wrong. And, and I just I just feel uncomfortable being in a plane that isn't, being piloted by somebody like that but then if they're those same people are the ones that are controlling it rather than the ai side of it then so if you had somebody who was was doing something similar to what you were doing with your simulation somebody who was sat there doing it but actually it enabled them to fly more times in a, in a day than they could normally would you be comfortable with that i'd, I'd still be nervous because there's, there's that saying flying by the seat of your pants um and that there's there's a truth to it that that if you're flying an airplane the movement of the airplane is transmitted to you through your bum because you're sat on a seat and uh, if you if the airplane's slipping sideways i had that when i went in this tiger moth if the airplane's slipping sideways in the wind you can feel it in your body and if you're sat in front of a desk you can't feel that whereas the 350 people sitting in the back of the plane they can they could be screaming what's it because they're scared because they feel the airplane moving in ways that it shouldn't and not being in the airplane means that you are denied two or three different senses you might be denied that the sense of the, the sound of what's going on around you you might be denied the feeling of the movement of the airplane that, that might be critical to you solving the problem and either landing or continuing whatever but again being there on the spot gives you more of a a feeling even in these modern automated age being in the plane gives you more information than you would otherwise have yeah i mean even like with like a haptic suit or something i mean you could kind of simulate some of that but you're right i think yeah you would you wouldn't kind of have that whole you know you're there you can you know you've got the smells the sounds the the sway of the aircraft you did that's something you just can't replicate is it so um, yeah and I, I had it, it's funny, it goes back to that simulation stuff that I used to do. Even people who have the money to invest in multiple displays, multiple screens to see the aeroplane around you, um, because you're still looking at a two-dimensional display, you can't do certain things. So I, I know people who would do virtual aerobatics or they would do virtual formation flying. And you look at what the Red Arrows do, the Blue Angels, the Thunderbirds, all these guys who are flying literally inches away from another plane. Without that third dimension, without the, the perception of the three dimensions, you can't gauge whether or not you're moving away from another plane or moving towards it with enough accuracy to be able to make the changes in the time that you need to do it. Uh, and if you look at uh, a pilot in any kind of formation uh, formation flight that he's doing if he's the one who's trying to form on another plane his hands are constantly in motion his eyes are glued to the guy that he's flying next to he will not look away but his hands are constantly in motion and i don't think that you could do that remotely but computers in that instance probably could because on the other side when you look at the drones and you've seen some of the drone light shows and things that take place and it's the sort of things that a human just couldn't do so i suppose and the other side of it is would it tap into things that we can't do that humans just are not able to do that you potentially could get a computer to do yes I, I mean, there is i think there are going to be there are going to be applications for airplanes that are ai controlled but well, they already are in in the military world 
and if you look at things like ocean surveillance and anything that that involves being aloft for a long time and doing a job that is otherwise somewhat boring and you don't necessarily want to put a, a pilot in that world and some of these uh, remotely piloted vehicles can stay in the air for a couple of days and a pilot can't do that so then you could you could pilot the airplane in shifts people yep. could do a three-hour shift and then go off and then come back but i'd still worry about putting live passengers in the back of that plane at that time yeah i mean i, I actually do agree i think i can play devil's advocate but while i'm a, a someone who does like to champion technology wherever possible um when i ask the questions of would i trust myself and my own loved ones in that plane no definitely not um, and I think maybe one day we'll get to that point where you would feel comfortable. But no, right now, I, I agree for all of the points you've said already. I think it's, there's just too much that could potentially go wrong. And just having that comfort blanket there of having people who you know can help in that situation that are in the situation with you. Um, because again, it, even with a pilot who is potentially able to access the same data and fix things in the same way, there's going to be an extra urgency if you're also the pilot and you've you've got your life at <laughs> risk as well as everybody else's. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. There's a book that was written uh, about a guy who flew Phantom jets over Vietnam, and a lot of books written by pilots. That I'm trying to say this gently, but a lot of pilots have a bit of an ego, um, and the types that sit down and write books about what they did are you going to do some top gun quotes nowadays while you guys are <laughs> i'm not i'm not but the, but there but there's a truth to that yeah. there's there's a, yeah. some some of these guys they're they're writing books to show how wonderful they yeah. are yeah. and you can there's any number of books out there that you can write that you can buy and i've got quite a few of them where you've got a guy saying right well there i was two feet above the ground upside down at mark two and it's all about what he did now this this book that i've i've got um phantom over vietnam the, the guy who wrote it took it from a different point of view and he actually talked about the process and what happened. And there's a, a good quarter of the book is actually about one mission, about a two hour mission. It's pages and pages and chapters and chapters. And if you're not a geek like me, you'd find it deathly boring. So that's a warning. But it, it talks about the number of different decisions that the pilot goes through almost on a second by second basis to get him through that two hour flight. And one of the things he says in his book that that somebody who comes to be a pilot has to bring two important things with him. One is kind of an inbuilt sense of timing. You've got to be able to to understand the timing of what you're doing and relate it to stuff around you. He said the other one is a, a kind of natural inbuilt feeling of your own invulnerability. You've got to think that you're going to live forever. Because if you think you're going to live forever, if something goes wrong, you'll keep thinking of something else to do. You, you'll never get to the point where where I've thought of three things, there's nothing else to do. Well, if you're in an airplane that's going towards the ground quickly, you're going to keep thinking, you're going to keep coming up with solutions. And people like test pilots, that's what they do every day. They keep thinking of solutions when things otherwise might be going wrong. I saw this great documentary actually with this. I think it was a Russian pilot and he was at an air show and he was a test pilot and it, I, he literally um, was crashing towards the ground. So he, he like, you know, ejected landed you know it must have been a horrific terrible stressful situation he landed cut his shoe lit up a cigarette and just walked off like nothing happens <laughs> right yeah. and these guys have got balls of steel haven't they i mean they are literally they their nerves there i mean this is why they're pilots right they, nothing phases them they, they are totally um in control they don't let stress get in the way and they can make very quick decisions on the fly that mean you yeah. know they're going to survive through you know situations like that so yeah they are yeah. They on are the fly i like that pun as well on the fly yeah. on the fly yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i just i was just going to say i i agree with all you guys I, I wouldn't get on a plane i think that was had no pilot i i'm quite comfortable in the fact that you know it flies on autopilot but if there's a problem especially when it comes to landing there is no substitute right now for somebody being able to sit there and, and take over the controls and um, you know, I remember, uh, Dave, you probably saw these well when you were a kid, all these 80s, 70s disaster movies even for aircraft, wasn't it? There was loads of them. And it's always the mm. passenger have to come and fly the plane and somebody talk them down. And yeah. one of my favourite films is the airplane movie, the, the, the parody on those, which is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, um, yeah, I'm with you guys. I, I, I just couldn't, I don't think I'd feel safe. 
Um, but uh, one day, yeah. you know, it, we're not that far away, probably. I don't suppose so. Well, I've actually seen a couple of air crashes in my in my time because I've been to enough air shows. Yeah. Um, there's a couple that I remember specifically where where the guy did it wrong. I mean, it's that's there's no other way of putting it. It's pilot error. But the fact is that he was the man in the plane doing the job and um, even allowing for the fact that he made an error, I wouldn't trust myself to an aeroplane that wasn't piloted by somebody who had experience. So it's time for the final section of the show as we each put forward our nominations for Geek of the Week. Each of us will nominate one person who we feel deserves the title and we'll all agree on the winner. So, Pete, do you want to go first this week? Okay, so I'm going to nominate a guy called Richard Browning. And if you haven't heard of him, he is the real-life Iron Man, if you like. He's got a jet suit that he built initially in his garage. Um, He metal-bashed together basically some arm braces uh, and one on his back, and he put some drone jet engines onto them. And he built a jet suit, basically, um, which has a heads-up display, funny enough. We talked about heads-up displays earlier. And uh, I met him in the very early days. Actually, we did a, um, a really cool video about him, which you can see on the uh, RS Components channel. And uh, Gravity is the business now that he's created. But the whole idea originally was uh, to try and see whether it was possible. I mean, actually, his day job, he was an oil broker, I think, for BP. And um, he was also uh, a Royal Marine Reserve. And uh, he built this jet suit in his garage. His, his dad, I think, was an engineer or a test pilot or his granddad, one, one way or the other. And he built this, this incredible piece of machinery and then strapped it to his back and then started flying around. So uh, it, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, he's evolved the suit now. He's got this four or five of them, I think, flying. He's got a world record for the fastest um, human with a, with a jet pack, if you like, going across water. And he's now in the process of setting up a race series, like human drone racing, right? So they literally will go over water and fly in and out of flatables and uh, have a racing circuit. So it's kind of like an F1 drone, human drone racing type circuit, which he's starting to create. So he's done some amazing things. Um, you can go and see their YouTube channel. He's, he's flown with the Royal Navy and you can see the, the frigate in the background. And But uh, yeah, incredible guy, incredibly... Um, driven and talented and they've created this say this amazing jet suit which I think you can buy it's quite a lot of money if you want to buy one it will do a flight school for you it's uh, a third of and, a million you know, or something like that isn't it yeah so I think he sold one for about yeah 250,000 which included flight school and um, <laughs> oh, yeah okay. it, it's incredible you've got to go and see the YouTube videos but so uh, yeah what, what an amazing character he, he's a great guy very talented um, and and it's just something that um, it's just amazing to watch and the noise that comes off of that thing is absolutely incredible and it's such an amazing thing as well he's doing a lot of STEM stuff getting kids into technology um, you know that is the kind of thing that really grabs kids attention and I think wow you know I want to be an engineer and build one of those too you know so yeah so my nomination this week is uh, Richard Browning for his uh, his jet suit and the gravity um, drone human drone racing I guess you could call it um, that they're putting together so yeah go go and check him out cool and uh, sticking with the theme so my nomination this week is a nine-year-old from Dorset called Curtis um, and I just came across something whilst on social media and it just made me smile um, and obviously knowing that this was our theme this week it, it really really made me smile so Curtis and his family are all RAF fanatics. Um, they go to as many air shows as they possibly can. Um, but his dad had to break the news to him that obviously during the current situation, there's not going to be any more air shows imminently. Um, they live close to quite a few RAF bases that they normally go to. And they usually arrange all of their holidays around that sort of thing as well to go to, to different air shows. But rather than get down about the fact that he couldn't go and see the, the shows that he wanted to, he decided to use his own model planes to create his own shows. Um, and it started off with just, you know, using a, a wire to, to try and make it look like the, the plane was flying and his, his dad was filming it. And then they took it to a whole new level. Um, and they, were, they created whole formations with the red arrows, with um, bits of cotton wool coming out the back oh, wow. to try and show the smoke. That They used sticks to, to put all these different formations together. He'd even created using all of his toy cars on the floor, the, the full car park outside. 
another <laughs> one with like a love heart and the NHS spelled out. And it was just, it was unbelievable. It's the sort of thing that you would only get from the imagination of a child. Um, How did they make the noises with the engine? Was that like so with their mouth? his dad was actually in charge of the sound effects and it right. sounds incredible. So <laughs> in the end, they made it a complete family effort. And they're not joking when they said the whole family really are plain daft. Um, they, they had the, the mum was filming in the end. Um, the son was, was working the, the planes, the various different planes and formations, and the dad was behind the camera in charge of sounds. And I think they've added a few sound effects in afterwards, unless he's that talented at making different plane noises. But wow. yeah, it was just, it was, it was very low tech compared to a lot of the nominations we normally get, but um, it really, really did make me smile. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to go uh, a little bit old school again, as I tend to. Um, and I could, the list of people that I could say would be Geek of the Week when it comes to aviation is absolutely enormous, whether pilots or innovators. And, and if anybody was interested, we could put links in the show notes to any number of people you could read up about. But there's a guy called Kelly Johnson. He worked for Lockheed and he was the, the driving force behind such things as the SR-71 Blackbird and the U-2 spy plane and loads of other things, P-38s during the war and F-104s, loads and loads of stuff. And he was just a hugely talented aeronautical engineer. But he also came up with, and, and he's credited with the keep it simple stupid principle, the KISS principle. And the idea that the engineering doesn't need to be complex, it just needs to be well organised, which I suppose that's a link back to us being geeks. And he came up with these 14 rules of management uh, about how a project like creating an aeroplane should be run. And some of them are very specific to, to what he was doing at the time, working with the Army and the Air Force. But there's there's one of these 14 rules that I absolutely love, which is such a, a thing that we've talked about in the past, about the number of meetings. It says, there must be a minimum number of reports required, but important work must be recorded thoroughly. The whole point is that don't bog me down with reports. Don't bog me down with meetings. Just go ahead and do it and then tell me what you've done. Um, he was a, a hugely talented guy, came up with loads and loads of different ideas and uh, a proper engineering geek. So he'd be my nomination. Wow. I think three very, very good nominations this week. I've I've met Richard Browning. I think he's an ace guy. So uh, he'd certainly get one of my votes. Yeah, I mean, for me, Richard is kind of the, the geek that we would all dream to be. If if you could, if you could actually go and create what you you wanted to do, I, I, yeah, I think that's unbelievable what he's what he's managed to achieve. Um, really, yeah, really from impressive. his garage originally to I mean, it's even three D printing now. You know the the engine mounts and things, right? Um, it's just incredible how he's used in effect off the shelf technology to build build this suit. And okay, you can only fly for about six minutes. You're not going to be able to commute to work on it, <laughs> right? But be a bit yeah. loud for the neighbours as well. <laughs> yeah, they are loud, as you know, Dave. Yeah, they're very loud. And only six minutes is a lot longer than any of us are able to go and fly. So yeah, that's and you know true. what? He can fly as high as you want, apparently, as well. So there's no limit to his altitude, but obviously there's a limit to how much fuel there is, right? So, yeah. you know, you, you can, want, hire, you can fuel, fly as you? high as you're willing to fall, I think, is yes. the way of looking at it. <laughs> Do you know, it, you know, I actually, um, I've been to see him, um, him fly quite a few times, and uh one of the guys when they were training it and he was flying around and he and he literally um i don't know really pressed the trigger wrong on the thing but he must have dropped from about i don't know four or five meters up in the air and just sort of bounced and got up and walked away and started <laughs> flying again you know in the spirit of these test pilots absolutely incredible but yeah i mean i would love to have a go but at the same time i would be so scared because you just you know and this is i think why they do a lot of it over water now because although it might um you know, crash on the electronics, you know, it's a much safer experience landing in the water and having an automatic yeah. inflation um, on, a, on a thing. But yeah, I mean, Richard definitely gets my vote, obviously, as well. I think he's created an incredible thing and he's got, he's just inspired so many people, you know, especially the younger generation uh, to be, hopefully, you know, be engineers and, you know, who else, who doesn't want to be the real life Iron Man, right? Exactly. So that brings us to the end of another show. So thanks again for joining us. Please make sure that you subscribe. We're available across your favourite podcast platforms. Um, and if you've got any questions, then just head to Design Spark, go to the podcast area and follow the instructions. So thanks again for joining us, Pete and Dave. Thank you. Good see you soon. And see you all again next week. Thank you. Bye, Bye everyone.